Hi, my name is Jamil, and you're listening to Public Health World. Join me as I interview people making a difference in the world and their communities through public health and global health alike. Today, we are doing things a little differently. I'm here with Joanne Buckskin. She is an academic at Flinders University. This episode, we will discuss Northern Territory intervention. The difference today is I'm not asking the questions. I became a sort of moderator for this awesome interview. And my co-hosts and fellow students are the ones who ask the questions. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Sure. Okay, so first before we begin, we acknowledge the first inhabitants and custodians of the land upon which we meet, teach and learn, the people of the Ghana Nation. We recognise the cultural authority of Elders past and present and of those emerging. We pay our respects to their ongoing spiritual, cultural, emotional and physical connection to country, from the plains to the ranges and down to the sea. We also acknowledge the cultural authority of First Nations and Zenatkes people who are in attendance from other areas of Australia. As a learning community, we accept the harm and damages perpetrated by invasion and colonisation and commit to walking the path to reconciliation. And thank you, Joe, for giving us the precious time for this little session, um, for a little yarn. Thank you. Okay. So, okay. So, Joe, would you like to introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of context for what you do, what your teaching learning areas are, and just a bit of a background. Sure. My name's um, Joanne Buckskin. And I am Ghana, Narunga, and Wajabalik. Uh, Wajabalik is in the Grampians area of Victoria, and Ghana and Narunga are located here and in the York Peninsula. And I'd just like to say thank you, Izzy. That was a really authentic uh, and beautiful acknowledgement of country, and I really feel as though that when students like yourselves are uh, writing and thinking about acknowledging country it comes a little bit from the heart um, and that was really beautifully done so thank you for that. Uh, I work here as a academic with the Indigenous Studies team. My main area of teaching is with uh, second year ab- ab- second year teaching with in Aboriginal education. Uh, So I teach across that faculty and there's about 240 students that now do mandatory Aboriginal education to better prepare them for work for when they graduate and go taking up teaching positions in schools with Aboriginal communities and students. And so that's really interesting and challenging and also really rewarding. And then in my sort of second semester, um, I teach uh, race and representation and I also teach caring for country and introduction to Indigenous studies. So my role's basically teaching intensive 
and I find it really rewarding because you get to, especially in this generation, who are all plugged in to so many uh, portholes of information, uh, you get to work with um, amazing students like yourselves who have great politics around climate change, around the Me Too movement, around Black Lives Matter, both on a global scale and here in their local communities. So it's just such a privilege to work in this space and um, I look forward to today's conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for thank you, Neon. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Uh, um, so what if anything, shall we all share what we knew about the intervention before we actually started studying and looking into it? Yeah. So Kavita, would you like to go first? Me personally, I had no idea what it was. I didn't even know there was like a law about the intervention until I did this topic and did a bit of research on it. So Um, so for me, um, I've had a little bit of experience with it. Um, I'm, I've studied nursing and also uh, nutrition in the past, and um, I've had a little bit to do with uh, Aboriginal communities in Sydney, so I've had a little bit of experience with it. I, I knew a little bit about it, um, but um, I'm hoping to learn a lot more through this and just through what we've studied recently. Um, so, yeah. Um. I didn't know anything. I didn't even know what the intervention was. The only thing that I knew about was the basics card, but I didn't know that it was part of the intervention. I just thought it was a separate sort of thing. Um, but then, yeah, all the research I've done has just blown me away. Like, it's, yeah, a lot to unpack for sure. I, I knew nothing about it at all. I didn't even know the basics card existed or anything like that. So I've learned heaps, so. Yeah, same with me. Like, I didn't know that the intervention was called the intervention, um, that there were... I knew about the myths and all the stereotypes around it, that, you know, um, Aboriginal men are, like, inherently, like, paedophiles and all of those really toxic kind of things around the child abuse that occurred that's, that caused the intervention. But I didn't even know until earlier this year that that was the root of why it occurred which was really unusual to me because there's so much greater issues that have caused those things in the first place. Um, but, yeah, that was my background. didn't know much about it until now. Jo, how about you? Uh, well, I heard, like yourselves, all those deficit discourses in the media, on social media. Were you even... What year was it bought in? 2007? Yeah, yeah. Were you alive? Yeah. Were you yeah. kids? Yeah. Yes, just... <laughs> All right. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> so you know those polarizing views that you hear in the media, and I think what's really important, uh, and you as Indigenous Studies students will respect that um, we're positioned in South Australia, and we come to this topic from a lens of urban Aboriginal non-Aboriginal spaces where. Uh, our experiences, well I know mine, has not been, uh, I haven't lived or rarely visited, you know, remote or homeland communities in the, in the Northern Territory and I've only ever been a tourist in that space. 
So I too, like you, relied on the media and I guess the Aboriginal grapevine of stories um, that came down from the Northern Territory intervention and some critical thinking, especially Marcia Langton and some of the uh, writings that came out. I don't even think podcasts were out in those days that we could access. So uh, like you all, I had... Not easily, at least. Yeah. Yeah major gaps in my understandings and I definitely would come from this not as an expert uh, and I would never speak uh, on behalf of a First Nations person who has lived that experience and like you all um, living here looking over the beautiful Ghana country we just uh, have to interrogate this topic from afar yeah. and uh, from hopefully some critical resources that we can draw on. So mine, um, I quickly did some research, obviously, yeah. with prior to the podcast and have had uh, discussions on it over, over my years of teaching. But I look forward to today's conversation and how we can unpack those the layers socially, culturally, politically, and th- and the policy and the legal justification mm. of the intervention. There's so many elements of it, and I think that uh, sitting here in our little yarning circle will be a great place to become more informed. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. So the government funded and led Northern Territory intervention of 2007 was labelled by officials as a response to conclusions provided by the Little Children a Sacred Report that giving consideration to the wider context within which sexual abuse has occurred, i.e. other child maltreatment and family violence and the general dysfunction of Aboriginal communities, this is quoted from the Sacred Report, there has been a breakdown of peace, good order and traditional customs and laws within these affected communities. Um, so that's a quote from Little Children a Sacred Report, which um, is the reason why the government took the measures that they did um, and responded however they chose to respond. We'll get into a bit of that later. Um, what external factors outside of some just mentioned, like child maltreatment and family violence, might have played a role in influencing the state of domestic relations in these communities, do you think, Joe? I think that a lot of that report... Uh, was taken out of context from my understandings and Pat who wrote that report uh, was devastated at the reaction and the blanket approach that this report you know what happened and the implications of the report so I think one uh you know, the first thing I would try to do if... What was the question again? Yeah, so external factors outside of, like, maltreatment and just violence, which are very, like, local issues. Um, What other factors influence the domestic relations in these communities? Well, I think the deficit discourses around uh, First Nation males has been a narrative that's been embedded since 1788, uh, the disempowerment of Indigenous men in their local communities had traumatic effects on 
most Indigenous men in those communities and the small minority of men who, uh, are, you know, have dysfunctional behaviours, I don't think it was a... The Northern Territory response was not a trauma-informed response mm -hmm. and therefore uh, to treat all Aboriginal men because uh, of a report taken out of context mm -hmm. was absolutely devastating and today uh, Aboriginal men in the Northern Territory as a result uh, Aboriginal youth uh, males are highly incarcerated and take up 100% Indigenous male imprisonment rates and Indigenous youth suicide rates. There are three direct implications from those stereotypes and those, you know, dysfunctional deficit discourses of Aboriginal men that were blunt, yeah, you know, across. Okay, yeah. I was reading a bit of the report this morning and there's a section, there's a whole section on myths that they had to outline that aren't true and aren't related to the report itself, which includes Aboriginal men are the only offenders, was one myth. Another was Aboriginal law is the reason for high levels of sexual abuse. Aboriginal law is used as an excuse to justify abuse. Um, and Aboriginal culture is the reason for under-reporting, but that doesn't yeah. actually factor in, like... Um, the distrust of the police, the criminal justice system being totally biased mm -hmm. against those communities. Also, also the distrust of the healthcare system. Yeah, um, yeah. They as, as this idea of having a, for lack of a bad term, a very um, English style of um, healthcare. I mean, generally speaking, we've only just started to introduce the Aboriginal model of social work, and I don't yeah. think I still don't think many. Um, Social workers actually have actually started following it yet when it comes to Aboriginal communities and people. So yeah, yeah, and the fact that this blanket response um, was from this report, and they said it was an emergency humanitarian response, um, but they it was up to they brought in troops. Like it was just, and then it very quickly seemed to change to a welfare reform act rather than anything to do with the. Um, what they claimed it was stemming from as well, which yeah. is just yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so much for closing the gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you hear of uh, and listen to people who lived through that remote community over the over the number of years, there were, as you were saying, there were a lot of hidden agendas um, to this Northern Territory response, and. The, the legal and policy response, according to the First Nations people on the ground up there, um, said their hidden agenda was to take back remote community and homeland stations' land and gain control. So as you said, there was all this legislation uh, that uh, meant that First Nations people no longer had self-determination of their remote and rural homeland community and that had also devastating effects just in general um, and that was something as you said that came under the myth of and what was real um, that and that still has implications today where uh, you know major uh, displacement of Aboriginal people has occurred because the government under the Northern Territory intervention, the Commonwealth Government stopped all funding to remote 
and rural homeland communities, which meant roads, housing, schools were all starved of any funding. So lots of youth and lots of um, people had to move more to regional towns like Catherine and Alice Springs. Um, and that had devastating effects culturally, physically and spiritually, obviously, yeah, for, for, these, for mm. these communities. So there were hidden agendas. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally. Surprise, surprise. Um, the inquiry actually recommended, and I found this this morning as well, there's so much information on there that just you wouldn't believe that was actually, that this is where the intervention came from because what actually occurred is so far removed from the initial um, like ideas and whatnot. So the inquiry recommended in part 13, prevention is better than cure that the Northern Territory Government work with the Australian Government in consultation with Aboriginal communities to A, develop a comprehensive long-term strategy to build a strong and equitable core service platform in Aboriginal communities, to address the underlying risk factors for child sexual abuse and to develop functional communities in which children are safe, and B, through this strategy, strategy address the delivery of core educational and primary health care services to Aboriginal people, including home visitation and early years services. And already when you start hearing those things, you can immediately tell that that's not what's occurred necessarily. Um, and that, you know, to address the underlying risk factors for child sexual abuse and the development and to develop functional communities, you have to address all of these other um, external governmental factors and like you know the the disempowerment of First Nations men, mm. um, colonialism, the stolen generations, and all of these really traumatic and intergenerational traumatic events um, need to be addressed. But obviously they're just looking at it, at it like it's just there, and it's not because of all of these other things. But anyways, I'm uh. I'm diverging. Um, how has or hasn't the government abided by such recommendations, and how do the government's actions since the intervention display a continuation of like racism, assimilation and co colonialism, um, you know, like, can you see Huge this? question. Okay. Yeah, I know, this is what I mean, like we have a little bit and we have a serious question, but That's whatever you get from it, you just tell us and then we'll weave it in. Okay, uh, well, my response would be that the you know those first key points and the framework that you've just beautifully articulated there is it was that was more of an inclusive and trauma informed response which was needed to the intervention and i think that uh the 2022 uh response to the, an evaluation to the Northern Territory intervention by the Castan Centre for Human Rights Law uh, has done a major review and an evaluation across employment and economic participation, uh, education, health life expectancies, safer community, incarceration rates, and it go and the list goes on. So there's all these indicators that this evaluation took place around these layers of the Northern Territory intervention and most of the they scored it out of 10 and one of the highest scores was um, three uh, on the evaluation of social and cultural rights so that was three out of ten uh, and 
five out of ten for education, um, but what, one of the things with the education was that uh, the Northern Territory intervention tied welfare payments to their families and parents' mm. yeah. uh, base basic card and students had to attend a certain amount or their um, families were starved of any money to get food and and uh, housing so it was you know a form of genocide really in some areas and this is what this report argues now on all those indicators most of uh, those indicators scored naught so there was no impact or positive impact in the Northern Territory intervention and all the elements of it, or there was very minimal um, in, uh, progress if, in terms of those indicators. If anything, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, would some of it have actually exacerbated some of these issues, like uh, having the issues with the fact that the um, students... Uh, Going to school was um, linked to the to the basics card. That probably actually hindered a lot of issues um, that were, that caused these original issues in the first place. Yeah. That's right. I feel like it's also interweaved that everything's affecting everything, and it was all negative. Like and they were coming in so negative mm-hmm. with everything, and I don't know how they thought they were going to get anywhere with it. And all of the research I did as well, and about how like the state of it now like you said like it's had no positive impact and yeah Yeah. i don't understand how they were given an outline of what they should do yeah they just completely disregarded it they had a recommendation their own agenda and yeah yeah, obviously the politics really influences them they're only going to make decisions that get them get them votes and get them seats so yeah that's That's an assumption but it's a factor certainly And the rights of the child, um, one of the positive things that came out of it from an academic perspective is uh, Sana Nakara is a wonderful up-and-coming First Nations or Torres Strait Islander researcher and academic. And she would have been just graduating year 12 as this Northern Territory intervention came out and she graduated and now has done a lot of work on the rights of the child under the United Nation Indigenous um, profile. So I really encourage you to look at her work if you're doing any write-up on this uh, because the rights of the child under the Northern Territory intervention was zilch. Um, and actually did more harm to the children who had to undergo all these sexual health checks which were really invasive and traumatic and had they had no autonomy or say. Um, and to, as you know, and we've been children, when you're hearing um, these stereotypes and negative opinions of some of the men in your community who... Um, most are positive male role models um, and have lived intergenerational disadvantage economically um, and culturally, then that has huge significance on children's role models and identity and self-development. So do you have any recommendations like better ways that the government could have gone about 
it. Share some ideas. Well, there's there's a whole range of ideas that uh, that can be talked about, and one of the first things I would do is make sure uh, you would get work with the evalu- the 2022, this year's evaluation, and look at the re- recommendations of, of that. And then you would pull together uh, First Nations people from all those key communities um, and make sure you have them around the table and get them to uh, themselves uh, work from a model of community development um, and a strength-based approach. So like we're doing now, let's have a look at go back, which the evaluation report has done. Let's have a look at these uh, what went wrong here because it felt like to me it was another protection and assimilation policy but in in a really modern day time and so we would definitely look at that from the perspective of those people on the ground and there's leaders there hear their voices and work um, from a community development approach where people in the community know best what their community is. Get rid of those blanket approaches Mm -hmm. and make sure that you are working with individual communities from rural, regional or homelands community that that can be quite remote because all of those communities will have different needs in terms of infrastructure, employment, education, uh, leadership leadership capacity and succession planning, uh, youth needs. So I think it would be that would be my first port of call is go in and 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 make sure that those communities are self determining and have those the agency to voice those particular issues. Equity over equality. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the, um. It makes me think of like the when Gillard government came into power and she changed it to um, stronger futures and she like said they said that they did this consultation with the communities but all of the reports now have said like they pretty much didn't take anything on board and it was all about looking like they were doing it mm-hmm. and all you have to do is look like that her all the um, legislation it was pretty much just changed wording it's not as though they changed the the i don't know what they were trying to achieve really yeah and um you just have to look at like this um cps like all the funding that was injected into that they used so much of it for removal instead of prevention and supporting the families and they've just never had like a it's always been a approach of negative trying to take away stop them having this and rather than a supporting yeah. and yeah helping them move forward like, instead of simulation yeah. it's not developing communities so they can live how they live yeah um it's so it's, you either live our way or yeah. you don't get anything not accepting exactly yeah. wow. which is the whole oh. problem with closing the gap scheme which is a whole other issue yeah, <laughs> yeah entirely but it's yeah. all next. yeah, yeah definitely that's connects, like yeah. yeah like linking some of this stuff to the closing the closing <laughs> the gap initiatives it's like yeah. yeah, well, that's it's yeah. Just as, as someone studying public health, I've been doing a lot of that. Where it's yeah. like um, something I've come to the conclusion of with a lot of these issues is 
if they actually started listening to the people living on the ground, the same sort of thing in, like, say, uh, any poor community, doesn't matter if it's in Northern Territory or if it's here in Adelaide, we, we can't... It's, ever, ever, it's always about the... Um, I said that equity versus equality thing. The government wants, um, uh, uh, wants um, equality, but the people there actually just want, like, want, want... Essentially need certain things that they aren't getting because no one actually listens to them. Mm-hmm. And then, in, as in the case of, say, the Aboriginal communities, it just widens and widens the health gap, widens, widens the education gap and all the other different things. Mm. And that segues beautifully into why uh, we need that up-and-coming up referendum around a voice to parliament because before you were born, there was a voice to parliament mm. called ATSIC mm. that didn't have its governance structures quite right. It was really male-heavy, so that was disbanded. But, you know, since ATSIC was abolished and we don't have those voices to Parliament where we could have done an intervention on the government before policy, you know, crazy policies like that could have been stopped and a sensible conversation with, you know, there's so many educated uh, Aboriginal policy officers who've, who've got long-term standing and... There's Aboriginal law and land lawyers, native title lawyers. There's Aboriginal health experts. There's Indigenous linguists now. There's all these, you know, skills and knowledges out there. And there's so many, like, sitting here in the table, there's so many non-Aboriginal allies who can also work together on the governance structure and the self-determination of those local communities up there in, in the Northern Territory. And it's those partnerships, like we're doing now, uh, that help the longer-term strategic development and more trauma-informed practices when it comes to uh, those communities. And I think that... You know, that's that's where we're heading and I think we're getting, uh, with a new change of government, I think you'll find that in your generation of working, you will be working in partnership effectively uh, and not paternalistically. You're not, you know, even if you're in state government roles, you, you, you would know as Indigenous Studies students not to go in and tell this is how it is you know to go in and listen and hear and uh, what are the strengths of those communities even though there's a variety of them and where do we need to move move forward for example is it education employment more youth program intervention youth programs to get kids to school or to alternative schools that work for them or is it um, more aboriginal community controlled health centers and legal centers where aboriginal people are developing skills and knowledge and leadership capacity to be self-determining in those particular communities so there's a whole range of programs that we could solve the world here, but we can't. But no. yeah, we, we can we certainly say it. Just press a button. Yeah, yeah. unpack it, so. and, and we don't have the Northern Territory representative groups here. Mm. But I think we, we, you know, we're doing a good job on uh, on ourselves trying to understand it without without the voice from the ground. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
fantastic. That was the next question. The next question was talking about the Gillard government and how they changed it to stronger futures. And no, no, it's, it's really good. And we were, the question was, have we seen this pattern of poor consultation and lazy legislating before? And of course, we have in many. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not only happened in the past, it is continuing to this day. Um, yes, obviously the white Australian policy, the strong generations, immigration policies now, I'm sure Kavita yeah. can express a lot of how attitudes towards Aboriginal people have extended to immigrants as well. Yeah. 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 Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Um, I myself thought, well, as a Nepali, I'm South Asian, and a mm. lot of brown people like me face a lot of racism on a daily basis when it comes to like going to school or walking around or like as a Muslim. I myself don't wear a scarf, but like my mother does, and I have had like people telling her to rip it off and like mm. saying, you know, cool things like that. And um, after doing this topic and learning about the uh, learning about Aboriginal people and like what they go through, I thought I went through like you know a lot with racism, but I realized that. They go through much more than what I do on daily basis. Even though they're like the First Nation people, they shouldn't be going through what they go through, and they should, you know, get equal rights and have equal opportunity like every other Australian living in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Mm, totally. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really important um, those stories, Izzy and. I think it's really, really important, and we should never ex uh, compare our experiences of being either attacked racially or as yeah. women uh, of assault, or we'd never compare our stories. Our stories are our stories, and our and your mum's feelings. I can't imagine yeah. uh, going on your normal day shopping and uh, walking through carrying the uh, stereotypes of what yeah. Muslim people have had to put up with yeah. and um, and that it's just frightening and after uh, the Adam Good story yeah. too you know looking at at the underlying attitudes that are um, stemmed from white yeah. Australia policy mm. you know your experiences as, so, as a young Australian yeah. your experiences are so valid and don't and it's like Racism that people like from my culture usually face are like from either kids who are very young or like very old people. Mm. Not like people who are like, you know, my parents' age or like my age because I think like, you know, they're changing the world and like we're the future of this country. So they're well educated on like, you know, racism and different cultures, religions, beliefs and everything. So... And the little kids, you know, who say immature mm. things as they grow up, they learn about it and they regret the things they like have said and they change. So, and that's why we need uh, first leaders like yourself and Ali, who's on just normal prime time TV, and just we need those faces just as we need 
First Nations people's voices and representations and all of those sort of things and women. You know, Julia Gillard's doing some beautiful work and runs a podcast on women and leadership and I think she's done amazing work. Yeah, I think it's good that we're we're criticising not the people who put these in, like these, these policies in place because it's not necessarily them who have their influence or it might not necessarily be their beliefs, but we're criticising the systems that have done this over time. Mm. Totally, which is really important because we can easily say, oh, Julia Killard, she oh, did yeah. that, but right. it's not necessarily her we all know now yeah. once it's yeah. been exposed, her treat, the treatment she went through um, as a woman in Parliament, mm. let alone can't imagine there being a First Nations mm. woman in Parliament. Mm. I can't imagine the, the struggles that you would go through yeah, yeah, and it's the tenure of the misogyny, uh, Gillard's misogyny yeah. speech this year, and there's, mm. she's doing some work around that because not a lot has changed. Mm. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, she's I've heard her being interviewed this year around that. Yeah, I will say we're getting very short on time. Right. So well, last no, that's okay. We've got one more question. Um, so, to what extent do the consequences of the intervention permeate across the broader First Nations context? So, what message has the intervention sent? And obviously, what the results we've found now through the 2022 evaluation, what message is that sending to the rest of other communities that might not have necessarily been affected, but I'm sure across the board, it's just another step, step back? I think there's, like, like through every, every terrible experience, I think people on the ground, legal, uh, legal education policy makers can all at once again learn from uh, these terrible mistakes and garner knowledge to, I guess, make better policy and to make sure that when the referendum around the treaty which is a which is a form of self-determination uh i think that's when australia can step up and vote and get a voice back into parliament and ensure that you know treaties which will include you know uh how people on homelands community people in remote communities urban aboriginal people uh, how they um, protect their cultural heritage and their lands and, and some of their sacred sites and how they work in partnerships with local government, state government and the Commonwealth. So they've got some legal standing. I think that um, we've got a lot of work to do in terms of you know, even one example is language revitalisation. Uh, that's the next big thing uh, for Australia is where we're going to be learning and pulling together and understanding Indigenous languages and that will make a big difference in terms of uh, Aboriginal identity and making sure that young kids in our schools have opportunities to learn Ghana language and, and things like that. So there's so many uh, so many areas that we now need to um, learn from and be much more strategically informed to move mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, no. I was about to say with the language thing as well. Um, I love the I love that idea. Um, I saw I saw a lot of um, that in New Zealand. Um, so I spent a year in New Zealand during my travels. 
and um, yeah, no, it was absolutely awesome. But something we, I really saw heavily there is this: they're still very. Um, I don't know if invested is the right term, but they're still very um, Maori culture first, and it's really amazing to see. Like, you walk in, I don't know if you've been to New Zealand, like Auckland Airport, but you walk in and it's like uh, Maori, like, instead of having one Aboriginal painting like you would here, it's full to the wall, like Maori art, carvings, you name it, you walk in and it's the Kiora, uh, welcome to the land, a little white cloud in the, in the language, all that. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, but yeah, no, so yeah, I love, love, love that idea. That's love inspiring, that yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's what we're moving towards and uh, we'll all do it together and that's the partnership and uh, opportunities that our non-Aboriginal students now can have as part of their learning and, and undertaking subjects like this and working um, and feeling confident to work in those cross-cultural partnerships. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So much for your time. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Public Health World. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more, subscribe. Or follow my LinkedIn at Jamil Locker.